0: One Christian writer, John Stackhouse, has stated that our televisions, radios, newspapers, and magazines pour out a never-ending stream of tragedy and disaster and selfishness and absurdity. Our eyes glaze over and our hearts grow numb with compassion fatigue. But every once in a while, a story grips us. We sit up straight. And the old questions return, such as, how could this happen? Uh, what kind of a world is this? And we might ask one of the oldest questions of all—how could a good and almighty God possibly allow such an evil to occur? The title of my presentation is God and Human Tragedy—How the Lord Can Transform Tragedy into Triumph. Life is good, and to be sure, there are moments and seasons in life that make it all worthwhile, uh, that whisper peace and assurance to our souls. that affirm that uh, men are that they might have joy. But there are times when our sense of wellness is shaken to the core, occasions when we bow our heads and we weep and we cry out, as did the prophet Joseph Smith, O God, where art thou? Indeed, when we think of the nightmare of the Holocaust, as well as the devilish and unnecessary loss of life under totalitarian regimes, we find ourselves saying, wait a minute, This isn't the way things are supposed to be. One evangelical scholar, a man by the name of Cornelius Plantinga, has observed, in the film Grand Canyon, he said, an an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam and attempts to bypass it. His route takes him along streets that seem progressively darker and more deserted. Then the predictable nightmare. His expensive car stalls on one of those alarming streets whose teenage guardians favor expensive guns and sneakers. The attorney does manage to phone for a tow truck, but before it arrives, five young street toughs surround his disabled car and threaten him with considerable bodily harm. Then just in time, the tow truck shows up and its driver, an earnest, genial kind of man, begins to hook up the disabled car. The toughs protest the truck drivers interrupting their meal. So the driver takes the leader of the group aside and he attempts a five sentence introduction to metaphysics. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude over there, well, he's supposed to be able to wait with his, for his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Well, no, things aren't the way they ought to be. And they haven't been since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden. This is a fallen world, and we're brought face-to-face on a regular basis with the fact that for this temporal time and season, not all well-laid plans come to fruition. Times change. Youth fades. Things break down, we make serious mistakes, we sin, bodies decay and grow old. I look at the date now and realize that uh, only two years ago I was rushed to the hospital because of a serious heart attack. I walk a little slower now, don't have quite the stamina I once had, and in general feel like the old tabernacle is losing the battle against mortality. Because there is pain because there's sorrow, because there's tragedy. Men and women ask, where is God, especially when it hurts? In speaking to BYU students over half a century ago, Spencer W. Kimball, then an apostle, asked some tough questions about human suffering and tragedy, and at the same time, he provided a provocative and elevated perspective on God. Brother Kimball said, "'Was it the Lord who directed the plain into the mountain?' to snuff out the lives of its occupants, or were there mechanical faults or human errors? Did our Father in Heaven cause the collision of the cars that took six people into eternity? Or was it the error of the driver who ignored safety rules? Did God take the life of the young mother, or prompt the child to toddle into the canal, or guide the other child into the path of an oncoming car? Did the Lord cause the man to suffer a heart attack? Was the death of the missionary untimely? Answer if you can, Brother Kimball said. I cannot. For though I know God has a major role in our lives, I do not know how much he causes to happen and how much he merely permits. Could the Lord have prevented these tragedies, he continues. Yes, the Lord is omnipotent with all power to control our lives and save us pain, prevent all accidents, drive all planes to protect us, to save us from labor, effort, sickness, even death, if he will. But he will not. The basic gospel law, Elder Kimball continued, is agency and eternal development. To force us to be careful or righteous would be to nullify that fundamental law and make growth impossible. It seems to me that Elder Kimball addresses a vital matter here that there's a major difference between an all-powerful and all-loving God allowing tragedies and mishaps and disappointments to take place versus the Almighty causing them to take place. I'm thoroughly committed to the doctrine that Joseph Smith taught in the School of the Elders, that God is the only supreme governor and independent being in whom all fullness and perfection dwell, and that in him every good gift and every good principle dwell. There really is no corner of our Heavenly Father's expansive universe about which He is ignorant, and no section of His kingdom wherein He doesn't exercise complete control. He loves each of us. He loves us as His children. He loves us enough to allow us to experience firsthand the pitfalls, the perils, the perplexities, the terrors, the taunts, the temptations of this second estate. As one theologian pointed out, If God made us stop sinning by somehow forcing goodness upon us and thus compromising the freedom of our wills, then we and God both would lose the goodness of authentic love among other goods. But if instead God caused us to outgrow sin and grow up into goodness, then nothing good would be lost, although much might have to be endured, and much good would be gained. That's the end of the quote. It's especially challenging for persons who view God solely as a dispenser of good gifts and happy times to fathom how and in what manner God is related, if at all, to to earthly trauma. Having been brought up on a constant diet of God is love or God is good, they inevitably equate such goodness with kindness. By the goodness of God, C.S. Lewis once pointed out, we mean nowadays almost exclusively his lovingness. And in this, we may be right. And by love, in this context, most of us think of kindness, the desire to see others than the self, happy. Not happy in this way or in that way, but just happy. What would really satisfy us, Lewis continues, would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, Lewis said, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. (laughs) A senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see the young people enjoying themselves. And whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. (laughs) Or, as someone else has observed... Theism does not affirm that God is always nice or pleasant or kindly. God's goodness is absolute purity. As much like the purity of a blast furnace as it is like the indulgence of a sweet grandmother. God always does the right thing. God always wills what is best. God always thinks without error or incompleteness or prejudice. Such a God may not always be likable nor always comfortable, but such a God may well be worthy of worship. Through the instrumentality of a modern prophet, light and truth and understanding concerning the true nature of God have come to us. The God we've come to know is an exalted man, a man of holiness, a divine being who indeed has all power, all knowledge, and who possesses every godly attribute in perfection. At the same time, through the clarifying lenses provided by the revelations of the Restoration, the Latter-day Saints are made acquainted with the God who is in fact in reality our Heavenly Father, the Father of our spirits, who has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, who feels tender regard for all His children, and is, like His beloved Son, touched with the feeling of our infirmities and who has granted unto each of us moral agency—the capacity to choose what we will do with our lives. As Elder Kimball pointed out in the statement above, agency is paramount. In fact, as we know, agency was one of the central issues in the war in heaven—a war, by the way, that's still underway. We also know in a very personal way of the reality of evil and of the fact that Lucifer is bent upon our destruction and the overthrow of the Father's plan. He does everything in his power to pervert and corrupt the right way and to entice men and women to use their agency unwisely. There are some things, brothers and sisters, that are even more horrible to contemplate than the Holocaust. Even more unspeakable than millions of innocent people being put to death by crazed dictators. More frightening than terrorists hijacking planes and murdering thousands. Consider this thought. What if there were no agency? What if people did not have the right to choose? What if somehow, in some strange way, Lucifer's amendatory proposals in the Grand Councils of Heaven had been implemented? Agency, one of the greatest of all the gifts of of a benevolent and generous God, comes at a price. Allowing us to choose automatically opens the door to improper, unwise, immoral, and evil choices, and thus to abuse and human tragedy. One philosopher, a man by the name of Richard Swinburne, has written this, and I, I remember reading this at first and thinking what a delightful way of putting this principle. A God, he said, who gives humans such free will necessarily brings about the possibility and puts outside his own control whether or not evil occurs. It is not logically possible, he says, that is, it would be self-contradictory to suppose that God could give us such free will and yet ensure that we always use it in the right way. A world in which agents can benefit each other but do not do each other harm is one where they have very limited responsibility for each other. If my responsibility for you is limited to whether or not to give you a camcorder, but I can't cause you pain, stunt your growth, limit your education, then I do not have a great deal of responsibility for you. A good God, he said, like a good father, will delegate responsibility in order to allow creatures a share in creation. He will allow them the choice of hurting and maiming, of frustrating the divine plan. Now note these next words, very perceptive insights. He said, I am fortunate if the natural possibility of my suffering, if you choose to hurt me, is the vehicle which makes your choice really matter. My vulnerability, my openness to suffering, which necessarily involves my actually suffering, If you make the wrong choice means that you are not just a pilot in a simulator where it doesn't matter if mistakes are made, that our choices matter tremendously, that we can make great differences to things for good or ill is one of the greatest gifts a creator can give us. And if my suffering is the means by which he can give you that choice, I, too, am in this respect fortunate. Or as one other man, John Stackhouse, has written, why doesn't God step in to save us, we might ask, even from ourselves? But let us consider what we're asking here. If God does so step in, such continual intervention has implications for human dignity, for the order of the world, and perhaps for the ultimate good of human life. Maybe, in fact, it's best that God does not intervene and lets us both make choices and live with the consequences. Where is God when it hurts? He is in his heavens. He is aware. He knows. In ways that you and I cannot even comprehend, he knows. And he blesses and lifts and liberates and lightens the burdens of his children whenever he can. But he cannot remove us from the toils and tragedies and contradictions of this life without robbing us of mortal experience. These things come with the turf. are part of the test. So much depends upon how we choose to look upon what most consider to be the unfairness and the senseless nature of temporal trauma. So much depends upon what we understand about God our Father, about His plan of salvation, and about how vital it is for us to move ahead even when our burdens or the burdens of others seem unbearable. While a measure of joy and happiness and a sense of overcoming can be ours in this life, The fullness of joy is reserved for the next estate when spirit and body are reunited in the resurrection. Wherefore, fear not even unto death, the Redeemer declared, for in this world your joy is not full, but in me your joy is full. Or as President Boyd K. Packer explained, quote, there there are three parts to the plan. You're in the second or middle part, the one in which you'll be tested by temptation by trials, perhaps by tragedy. Understand that and you will be better able to make sense of life and to resist the disease of doubt, despair, and depression. If you expect to find only ease and peace and bliss during Act Two, you surely will be frustrated. You will understand little of what is going on and why it is permitted to be as they are. Remember this, Elder Packer said, the line, and they all lived happily ever after, is never written into the second act. That line belongs in the third act, when the mysteries are solved and when everything is put right. As Elder Neal a. Maxwell taught, when we tear ourselves free from the entanglements of this world, are we promised a religion of repose or an Eden of ease? No. We are promised tears and trials and toil, but we're also promised final triumph the mere contemplation of which tingles the soul." You and I, brothers and sisters, shouted for joy in that premortal day because we knew that there were lasting lessons and everlasting principles to be learned on earth—things we could neither grasp nor experience in our first estate. We shouted for joy because we knew that there were relationships to be developed, feelings to be felt, tests to be passed. And we shouted for joy, knowing full well the struggle through which we would be called upon to pass, because we knew that it would all be worth it. Every one of us will, at one time or another, face adversity, whether it be in the form of financial reversals, personal struggles, the loss of a loved one, or some type of profound disappointment. Adversity will come to us, one and all, whether we are prepared for it or not. Too often and tough times, we yield ourselves to stress and distress, to despondency and discouragement—much more so than our forebearers would have. Certainly life is more complex today. The demands on our time are more intense, and the temptations of the devil seem to be more sophisticated. At the same time, it seems to me that there is a mindset characteristic of our age, of our time, that opens us to despair. That mindset is one in which we assume, given all the pleasures and luxuries of our day and age, that all should be well with us, that we should be perpetually happy. Many of us have bought into and imbibed the jargon and the philosophy of our pop psychology world. The fact is, life can be tough. We're not guaranteed a stress-free existence, nor did the Lord promise us a mortal life void of challenge and difficulty. We're now living in a fallen world, one in which things break down and decay and atrophy and die. We're living in a mortal existence. Now, lest you misunderstand my point, there's much in the world that is glorious and beautiful and uplifting and inspiring. Many of the relationships we establish, for example, are elevating and enriching. They bring the deepest of joys into our lives, but we receive our joys alongside our sorrows. Both elements of the equation come with the turf, with earth life, and we knew this before we came. C.S. Lewis once observed that God has paid us what he called the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. We are, he continued, not metaphorically but in very truth a divine work of art. Something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Thus it's perfectly natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. (laughs) But then we're wishing, he said, not for more love, but for less. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, the scripture says, and scourgeth every child whom he receiveth. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it's written, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised, meaning trained or or disciplined thereby. James, the brother of the Lord, instructed us to count it all joy when you fall into many afflictions, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have its perfect work, he continued, that you may be perfect and entire, nothing wanting. In short, there are great lessons to be learned from life's struggles—lessons that can perhaps be acquired in no other way. Many of our afflictions we bring upon ourselves. Maybe it's through our own impatience, short-sightedness, or sins. I suppose there are even lessons to be learned from our sins not the least of which is the motivation to avoid in the future the pain associated with our misdeeds. But these are lessons that I am persuaded the Lord can bring into our lives without sinning. A man called as a bishop, for example, need not be troubled about the fact that he's lived a faithful life and thus may not be able to feel what the transgressor feels—the great physician, Christ, He who descended below all things during the awful hours of the Atonement. He is able, through His Holy Spirit, to reveal to His ordained servants what they need to know and feel in order to lead the wandering sheep back into the fold. There are, however, lessons that come to us from God through challenges and distresses and setbacks and failures. There is a purifying work of pain, a divine work that can transform the soul of the distressed one, if— if he or she approaches the difficulty with the proper attitude. It's not uncommon for members of the Church who have lost a loved one or who now must face the prospects of a terminal disease or whose financial fortunes have been dramatically reversed to ask questions like this—why? Why would God do this to me? Why is this happening? These are, of course, natural reactions to trauma, especially when each one of us would be perfectly content to remain perfectly content. (laughs) But that's not why we're here. On more than one occasion, I've suggested to sufferers as kindly and lovingly as I could that why is this happening is not the proper question. Why is it happening? Because we're mortal. Because things like this happen in a mortal world. No one of us is required by God to enjoy suffering or to anticipate with delight the next trial. I have an associate who said to me once, You know, Bob, I I learned so much from my trials that I find myself praying that the Lord will send more trials my way. I smiled, but I thought to myself, No way, you wouldn't catch me dead praying for trials. They come without praying for them. On the other hand, it makes little sense for you and me to come to earth to be proven and then to ask why we're being proven. The Father is the husbandman, the vine dresser. The Savior is the vine, and we are the branches. The vine dresser chooses the manner in which he will purge the branches. Why? Notice from John 15. Every branch that beareth fruit, the Master said, he, the Father, purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Elder Richard G. Scott pointed out that when you face adversity, you can be led to ask many questions. Some serve a useful purpose, others do not. To ask, why does this have to happen to me? Why do I have to suffer this now? What have I done to cause this? will lead you into blind alleys, Elder Scott said. Rather ask, what am I to do? What am I to learn from this experience? What am I to change? Whom am I to help? How can I remember my many blessings in times of trial? In describing life within a prison camp, Viktor Frankl has written that we who lived in concentra- concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing the last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any get- given set of circumstances and to choose one's own way of life. As difficult as it is for me to acknowledge this, we must occasionally be willing to be broken if we really expect to gain that broken heart and contrite spirit about which the scriptures speak. Inasmuch as our will is the only thing that we can in the long run really consecrate to God, the Lord needs to know of our willingness to be broken by Him. That is, to, to what degree are we willing to submit, to surrender, to yield our hearts to him? What happens in the breaking of a horse, someone has asked. Contrary to what many people believe, the horse's spirit isn't broken. A well-broken horse remains strong, eager, quick-witted, aware, and he loves to gallop when given free rein. Rather, it is the horse's independence that is broken. The breaking of a horse results in the horse giving instant obedience to its rider. He continues, When a child of God is broken, God does not destroy his or her spirit. We don't lose our zest for living when we come to Christ. We don't lose the force of our personality. Rather we lose our independence. Our will is brought into submission to the will of the Father so that we can give instant obedience to the one whom we call Savior and Lord. He continues, We can choose to respond to brokenness with anger Bitterness, hate, we can rail against our circumstances. We can strike out against those whom we believe have caused us pain. Those options are available because we have free will. The way to blessing, however, lies in turning to God to heal us and make us whole. We decide whether we will yield to him and trust him. That's the end of the quote. Indeed, if we approach them properly... Our trials can teach and sanctify us, can assist us to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Francis Webster, one of those who suffered unspeakable pain as a member of the Martin Handcart Company, said this. He said, Every one of us came through with the absolute knowledge that God lives, for we became acquainted with him in our extremities. At a very difficult time for my wife Shauna and me, when we were watching helplessly as loved ones chose painful and unproductive paths, we found ourselves early in the process of dealing with the pain at a crossroads. We sensed at that early juncture that our attitude toward what we were experiencing was everything. To be honest, both of us went through a period of weeks and months in which our days were filled with self-doubt, with uh, personal recrimination with loads of questions about what we had done wrong over the years. But as we prayed with intensity, as we, as we read the scriptures with new and searching eyes, and as we spent time regularly in the Holy Temple, there began to distill upon us the quiet but powerful realization that only we could determine how we would deal with our dilemma. Would we allow our problems to strangle our marriage and family? Would we permit these difficulties to drive us into seclusion? Or would we yield to doubt and cynicism, given that we had tried so hard through the years to do what we were asked to do? I'll be forever grateful that the two of us somehow sensed that we must face this together and that the one thing we could not afford to have happen was for the trial to drive the two of us apart. Further, after a time of being wrung out emotionally and spiritually, we both sensed that the Lord was our only hope for peace our only means of extricating ourselves from dysfunctional living. It was then that our prayers and our yearnings began to change. It was then that we found ourselves shorn of self-concern, naked in our ineptitude. It was then that we acknowledged our nothingness and drew upon the strength and lifting power of our divine Redeemer. Oh, we were still concerned, and we kept trying, but as Lewis would say, we were trying in a new way—a less worried way. We shouldn't feel unnerved unnerved by trials and challenges and even a bad day once in a while. And there are certainly times when a third party—be it a priesthood leader, a parent, a dear friend, or maybe even a professional counselor—can assist us to put things in place or in proper perspective. It may even be necessary in some instances for an individual to have medication prescribed by a competent physician, but we must never, brothers and sisters, never, ever minimize the impact the Master can have in our lives—the calming and reassuring and healing balm that he can be to us, no matter the depth of our despair or the seriousness of our situation. Whatever Jesus lays his hands upon lives, Elder Howard W. Hunter once said. If Jesus lays his hands upon a marriage, it lives. If he's allowed to lay his hands upon a family, It lives. The touch of the Master's hand is life and light and love. It calms. It soothes. It sanctifies. It empowers. It transcends anything earthly. Those who have been healed by that sacred and sensitive touch are they who can joyously proclaim, like Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, we have found the Messiah. I don't wish in any way to minimize some of the tremendous challenges that many of our people face. These are real and sobering. I'm very much aware that there are many today who have been subjected to much of pain and distress in their lives, to abuse, to neglect, to the agonies of wanting more than anything to live a normal life and to feel normal, to feel normal feelings, but who seem unable to do so. I know I know that the day is coming when all the wrongs—the awful wrongs of this life—will be righted, when the God of justice will attend to all evil. Those things that are beyond our power to control will be corrected either here or hereafter. Many of us may come to enjoy the lifting, liberating powers of the Atonement in this life, and all of our losses will be made up before we pass through death. Perhaps some of us will wrestle all our days with our traumas and our trials, for he who orchestrates the events of our lives will surely fix the time of our release. I have a conviction, though, that when a person passes through the veil of death, all those impediments and challenges and crosses that were beyond his or her power to control—abuse, neglect, immoral environment, weighty traditions, and so on—will be torn away like a film and perfect peace will prevail in our hearts. At the time my wife Sean and I were going through some of our deepest sorrows and distresses, we could not have sensed what lessons for life were being chiseled into our souls. It all seemed during that season of stress so, so overwhelming, so awful, so terribly unfair. And as is true with most of us, it's tough to learn lessons while you're in the midst of the refiner's fire. Now, while I would not wish to go through the experience again, at the same time I wouldn't trade the lessons we learned for anything in this world or in the world to come. They were timeless lessons, eternal and tender tutorials that have drawn us closer to the Good Shepherd and expanded our consciousness and our empathy for His precious sheep. We learned some things about God during those years of trial, but we also learned some things about ourselves. Fortunately or unfortunately, the only way I can know to what extent I will serve God at all hazards is to have my metal tested. In asking Abraham to offer his son Isaac, for example, Abraham needed to learn something about Abraham. In some ways, then, facing our trials courageously and resolutely prepares us for fellowship with those who have passed the test of mortality. Now, to be sure, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not subscribe to a doctrine of asceticism, nor do we teach that we should seek after persecution or pain. But persecution and pain are the lot of the people of God in all ages. And each of us, saint and sinner alike, becomes acquainted with the suffering servant through our suffering. We've been taught by those who know best that all these things shall give the experience— And shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? No, no, we're we're not greater than he. Nor should we suppose that fellowship with him, who was well acquainted with grief, will come through a life of ease. As the Apostle Peter counseled us, beloved, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. As tough as it is, over time and through seasons of experience we come to glory in our trials, for only through times of weakness and distress do we eventually merge into a day of strength. power. Further, we sense our need to address personally the problem of evil and suffering by attending to those things over which we do have some control—namely, our own thoughts and actions. That is, we must begin by acknowledging that evil isn't just out there somewhere, some external threat against which we might heroically struggle, but also in here, in the recesses of our own hearts. Where do we begin to crusade against evil? In our own lives. As Marilyn McCord Adams once, did, once challenged us, she said continual repentance is the best contribution anyone can make towards solving the problem of evil. Several years ago my wife and I were struggling with how best to build faith in all of our children and how to entice wandering souls back into church activity. A caring colleague, sensing the weight of my burdens, happened into my office one day and simply asked this question, Do you think our Heavenly Father wanders throughout the heavens in morose agony over his straying children? Startled a bit by the question, I thought for a moment, and I said, Well, no, I don't think so. Uh, I know he feels pain, but I I honestly can't picture God uh, living in eternal misery. Then my friend responded as follows. Ask yourself why he doesn't do so, and it will bless your life." And then left. I didn't get much work done the rest of the day. I spent many hours pondering the question. When I arrived home that evening, I asked my wife to sit down and reflect on the same question. She answered basically as I did, and then the two of us set about a prayerful quest for the next several days to understand how it is that our eternal Father deals with his pain. In time, it began to dawn on us that the Lord knows the end from the beginning, and that, as Joseph the prophet uh, declared, uh, all things, past, present, and future, are and were with him one eternal now. Perspective. Perspective. That was the answer. God deals with pain through and by virtue of his infinite and perfect perspective. He not only knows what we have done, what we are doing, but He also knows what we will do in the future. And if, in fact, as the prophets have taught, many who are heirs to the blessings of the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will either in time or eternity be reconciled to and reunited with the covenant family, then all we need to do for the time being is to seek through fasting and prayer for at least a portion of God's perspective, His omniloving patience his long-suffering, his ever-open arms, and a glimpse of the big picture. Such a perspective will not only serve us well here in the midst of our sufferings, it will empower our souls and fashion us into the image of our Master, who is the personification and embodiment of charity—what we know as the pure love of Christ. Knowing something about the the, the future—the end—can help us immeasurably in dealing responsibly and productively with the present. The reason we need not succumb to cynicism or depression or despair about how awful things are now is that one day, before too long, things will change. God is in charge. Satan may possess a huge following, and he may have great power, but God will win the battle between good and evil. As the Apostle Paul declared, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that you're attending a football game, Elder Boyd K. Packer stated. The teams seem evenly matched. One team has been trained to follow the rules, the other to do just the opposite. They're committed to cheat and disobey every rule of sportsmanlike conduct. While the game ends in a tie, it's determined that it will continue until one side wins decisively. Soon the field is a quagmire. Players on both sides are being ground into the mud. The cheating of the opposing team turns to brutality. Players are carried off the field. Some have been injured critically. Others, it's whispered, fatally. It ceases to be a game and becomes a battle. You become very frustrated and upset. Why let this go on? Neither team can win. It must be stopped. Imagine that you confront the sponsor of the game and you demand that he stop this useless futile battle. You say, it's senseless and without purpose. Has he no regard for the players? He calmly replies that he will not call the game. You're mistaken. There is great purpose in it. You've not understood. He tells you that this is not a spectator sport. It is for the participants. It is for their sake that he permits the game to continue. Great benefit may come to them because of the challenges they face. He points to players sitting on the bench, suited up, eager to enter the game. When each one of them has been in, when each has met the day for which he's prepared for so long and trained so hard, then and only then will I call the game. Until then, note this, it may not matter which team seems to be ahead. The present score is really not crucial. There are games within games, you know. Whatever is happening to the team, each player will have his day. Those players on the team that keeps the rules will not be eternally disadvantaged because they keep the rules. They may be cornered or misused, even defeated for a time. But individual players on that team, regardless of what appears on the scoreboard, may already be victorious. Each player will have a test sufficient to his needs. How each responds is the test. When the game is finally over, you and they will see purpose in it all. May even express gratitude for having been on the field during the darkest part of the contest. Then, in providing a, a bit of interpretation for this remarkable parable, Elder Packer added I do not think the Lord is quite so hopeless about what's going on in the world as we are. He could put a stop to, to all of it at any moment, but He will not. Not until every player has a chance to meet the test for which we were preparing before the world was, before we came into mortality. That's of the quotation from Elder Boyd K. Packer. Now, it's true that perilous times lie ahead and that murder and immorality and deceit will extend their evil tentacles, that it will seem to us as though every man were at war with his neighbor. But there will be safety, brothers and sisters, in the stakes of Zion, safety within the gospel net safety and security to be found through standing in holy places. While the prophetic promise is that the Lord will preserve His people, this does not necessarily mean that the righteous will always be spared the pain of loss, the agony of misrepresentation and betrayal, or even the sober reality of mortal death. What I'm trying to say is this. Because we know that God will win, we need not fret about the future. Because we know that the great and abominable Church will crumble, we need not be discouraged as organized evil spreads its mischief. Because we know that this Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will indeed be found in every nation and kingdom under heaven, we need not worry about this slanderous remark or that misrepresentation of our faith and way of life. The Lord lives. This is His work, and He will bring it to consummation. He will not be defeated. Nephi prophesied, "...for the time soon cometh that the fullness of the wrath of God shall be poured out upon all the children of men. For he will not suffer that the wicked shall destroy the righteous, wherefore he will preserve the righteous by his power, even if it so be that the fullness of his wrath must come, and the righteous be preserved even unto the destruction of their enemies by fire." Meaning, the fire of the second coming, the glory of Christ. Wherefore, Nephi stated, the righteous need not fear, for thus saith the prophet, they shall be saved, even if it so be as by fire. A BYU colleague of mine, now retired, Professor Todd Bridge, told a delightful story that illustrates the, the power and peace that come of knowing that the victory is assured. A few years ago, he said, before the time that all BYU games were televised live, I landed at the Salt Lake Airport just as a BYU away game was concluding. I rushed around the terminal until I found someone who could assure me that we had won, although by a very close score. That evening, after returning to Provo, I went downstairs to watch the replay of the game on KBYU. My demeanor was amazingly serene. When we fumbled or had a pass intercepted, I hardly reacted. My wife even let our children get around me. Usually, he said, I feel obligated to help my brethren with striped shirts by pointing out their errors in judgment. Because my seats are on row 25, such correction often requires a rather high decibel level. This loudness is carried over to watching football on television. But on that day, I remained absolutely calm, even when I had the benefit of instant replay to verify my claim that their defensive back clearly arrived early and that uh, the ground had obviously caused our running back to lose the ball. I was a veritable model of football decorum, never becoming unduly upset or ill-behaved. And then Brother Britch says this, the cause of my improved behavior was obvious. I already knew the outcome of the game. BYU would win. It's amazing how that knowledge changes things. Cornerbacks can get beat, running backs can fumble, linebackers can miss tackles, offensive guards can blow blocking assignments, and other things can go wrong, but when we know the final score, such things can be endured and sometimes even ignored. We also know the final score for the history of this world and for the life of the righteous. The Lord and His people will triumph. It is true that the sorrows of this world and the strength of Satan's forces will win a number of the skirmishes, Satan and his followers, as well as the natural circumstances of mortal life, will inflict many bruises and win many battles. But God, who knows the end from the beginning, has promised that those who serve him will receive the fullness of his blessings. When we realize that righteous living puts us on the winning side, we can learn to trust him during trying times. That's the end of the quote. The Savior and his anointed servants have invited you and me to live and act today as the victors, with quiet confidence, with assurance, and with an optimism born not of arrogance, but of trust in and reliance upon him who has all power. We can face the traumas of the present because we know something about what lies ahead. We proceed confidently in the war against evil because of our confidence in the captain of our souls. Some 700 years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, Isaiah uttered prophetic words that would find their fulfillment largely in the mortal ministry of the Anointed One. Isaiah wrote, The the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, To comfort all that mourn. Now note this very important passage that follows. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's from Isaiah 61. Jesus Christ came to bring beauty for ashes, to, to replace distress with comfort, worry with peace turmoil with rest. The good shepherd came to earth on a search and rescue mission to identify and gather in those who have strayed, to welcome the wanderer back home and adorn the tattered son or daughter of God with a a robe, a ring, and to provide a banquet where a fatted calf would be served. Our precious Savior condescended. He left his divine throne to come down and be with his people, the sheep of his fold. He came to right all the terrible wrongs of this life, to fix the unfixable, to repair the irreparable. He came to heal us by his tender touch, to still the storms of our startled hearts. Again, we say he came to replace ashes with beauty." Because things did not always turn out as we would expected—because today was not the day we had bargained for. Every one of us, Elder Jeffrey Holland pointed out, has times when we need to know things will get better. The Book of Mormon speaks of this as hope for a better world. For emotional health and spiritual stamina, everyone, Elder Holland said, needs to be able to look forward to some respite, to do something pleasant and renewing and hopeful, whether that blessing be near at hand or still some distance ahead. My declaration, he said, is that this is precisely what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers, especially in times of need. There is help. There is happiness. There really is light at the end of the tunnel. It is the light of the world. I say, hold on. Keep trying. God loves you. Things will improve. Christ comes to you in his more excellent ministry with a future of better promises. Each one of us, brothers and sisters, needs to know... Needs the conviction deep down in our souls that our Master is not an absentee landlord, not a distant deity. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows from firsthand experience all about our pains, our afflictions, our temptations, and thereby understands the weakness of man and how to succor them who are tempted. He has not, as the deists proposed centuries ago, wound up the world clock and left it to run on its own. Rather. He is intimately involved in saving and succoring, literally running to help those who call upon him and and learn to trust in his mighty arm. Indeed, our God's infinity does not preclude either his immediacy or his intimacy. As Enoch the seer learned, when we need God, when we reach out to him, he is there. His bosom is there. He is just and merciful and kind forever. Many times we are tempted while in the crucible of suffering to cry out, Where is God? Where was He when we needed Him? Could He not have prevented this heinous deed, we ask? Our God, though an exalted man of holiness, is also all-powerful, has all-knowledge, and is by the power of His Spirit everywhere present. He could, if He chose to do so, prevent every tragedy and block every trauma, but He will not do so, for such would thwart the great plan of happiness by impinging upon the moral agency of both the wicked and the righteous. We are reminded that the Lord promises to give the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. As we open ourselves to this redeeming and enabling power, Jesus pours oil on the troubled waters of our lives, and He clothes us in the quiet assurance of His sanctifying praise. When we've learned to lean on the Lord and rely on His goodness and His approval, then what the world thinks of us comes to matter precious little. You know, life is good. Like you, I've experienced pain and frustration. I've experienced anguish of soul. Like you, I've had those dark moments when I ask why—why I'm being asked to pass through miserable and upsetting times. So I know something about sufferings and sorrow and struggles. But there are so many blessings to be gained in this life. There are so many things to look forward to. There's so much that you and I can anticipate. I echo the counsel of the prophets of God, ancient and modern, that we need not fear. We need not surrender to doom or gloom. God is in His heavens. He knows us, one and all, and He knows our pains and our possibilities. Jesus Christ, our Deliverer, lives. He is working through His living apostles and prophets to bear our burdens and liberate our souls, to liberate our souls from the galling yoke of sin and the fetters of a fading world. I rejoice in the privilege that it is to be a part of the dispensation of the fullness of times, to be a participant in the winding-up scenes, and I look forward more than I can say to the return in glory of our Lord and Savior and to life with Him and the faithful saints of all ages. Toward the end of the book of Revelation is found this great passage. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these people who are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I so attest in the name of him who came to bring deliverance from earth's sorrows and eternal life to those who are faithful to their covenants. Even Jesus Christ. Amen. This Education Week address by Robert Millett was given at Brigham Young University on August 18,
1: 2003. Do it all you can do With one word the mountains move There is power in this room Where the Spirit of the Lord